We're going to get to 1 Thessalonians in a couple weeks and resume that study that we broke off just before Christmas. But to start out the new year, I think it's important for us to focus on this whole idea of missions, global missions. And so today, the theme of my message, and next Sunday, Pastor Ben will be speaking on the same theme of taking the gospel of Christ to those who have never heard. A couple quotes have stirred my thinking this past year. The first is from Paul Borthwick, a well-known missionary, one who has spoken at our own missions conference. And I'm not sure this originated with him, but he made a statement in one of his books that God is a missionary God. Well, that's a great statement. God is a missionary God. The God and creator of the universe longs to reclaim people, to reconcile people back to himself. And he wants to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to those who have never heard. God is concerned about evangelism and taking the message of Christ to the end of the world. And then this quote uh, that came from a, a fellow by the name of Mike Strakura. He said that a great church, the way you evaluate a great church, is not by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. Seating capacity is how many people you can get in the building, how many people you have attending on Sunday morning. And by the way, that's how most pastors and people rate churches. If you're a big church, you must be a great church. And the bigger you are, the greater you are. But you know the fallacy in numbers. Mike says we need to change that focus totally around and say it's not how many people you have, but how many people you're sending out not just as missionaries to go around the world, but people taking the gospel of Christ to their own neighbors and friends and family in the town in which the church is planted. In other words, a great church is a missionary church, and that has to be true if God is a missionary God. And I believe with all my heart, he is. Now, Many churches around today, Bible-believing churches, those who hold up the Scriptures as being the authoritative Word of God, many of them are backing off on their commitment to missions, probably for various reasons. The giving's not as good, so they're no longer supporting as many missionaries, and they're cutting back on the missionaries they do support. Many churches have stopped having missions conference because no one comes, and they're not exciting, and... Uh, people lost interest, so they just stopped having them. And they're not committing as many dollars to the cause. Maybe it's the opposition of the world to this whole concept of missions, and we become intimidated, so we back off. Many reasons that churches are no longer vibrant and excited and zealous for missions. And I suppose if you would compare South Church with other churches, we would fare pretty well because we're supporting well over 70 families or institutions. And our giving has been going up every year, and we have a vibrant conference, missionary conference in October, and we might be quick to pat ourselves on the back if we compare ourselves with others until we realize the comparison is not with others but with the Word of God. And although you and I can be thankful for what is happening here through South in this whole realm of missions, I'm convinced we could do more and we could be better 
We could be more missionary-minded than we are presently and more people involved and conscious and praying about this whole thing of global missions, this whole endeavor and enterprise. I want South Church to send more people to the field. I want us to commit more resources to the cause. I want us to offer more prayers. I want more of South people to be involved in the greatest enterprise that is nearest and dearest to the heart of God, and that's people being forgiven of their sin through the atonement of Christ, believing in him and being reconciled to God. There's nothing greater in all the earth, and that's what we get to do as a church. So while we're doing some things well and we praise the Lord for what's happening there's so much more we could do. But there is opposition to becoming a missionary-minded church. John Stodd, a former pastor of All Souls Church in London, England, a great missionary statesman himself, wonderful author, said this, In our society, there are two philosophies that compete for dominance. The first is religious fanaticism. Think of militant Islam. The fanatic displays the kind of irrational zeal that would use force to compel others to believe his message and use force to eradicate them if they don't. Fanatics refuse to countenance any rival system. They will not tolerate any other religion. So in North Korea, you can't have a Bible, and in Saudi Arabia, you can't have a church, and it's like that in many other places in the world. They will not tolerate any other position. And they'll force you to believe. They'll imprison you if you don't or take your life. The other philosophy that dominates or competes for dominance is religious pluralism. Think of modern America. Pluralism encourages the opposite tendency, Stott says. It bitterly resents any exclusive claims from a group saying this is the only way. It despises evangelism. It wants you to tolerate everything, and the only thing it won't tolerate is intolerance. So religious pluralism says to the church of Jesus Christ, it's fine for you to exist over there just off of Snow Road. It's fine for you to build a chapel. It's fine for you to grow your church. Just don't go out and tell others that they're sinners and they need to repent and believe in Christ, that he's the only way. We won't tolerate that. And so what is the church to do? We're kind of caught in the middle. We're intimidated by the people who say we're just imperialistic, that we're just out trying to give credence to our own opinions and force everyone to believe just like we do. How arrogant can you be? And you're getting involved in other people's private business. Mind your own business, they say. What are we going to do? Some of us cower and say, okay, I'll mind my own business. I'll not talk about the gospel anymore. It's not very popular. I love the story of Deal Moody, who was a great evangelist. If you don't know the name, he was the Billy Graham of the 1800s. He started the institution called Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. 
But he was a great witness for Christ, sharing the gospel wherever he would go. And one time he was witnessing, I think it was on the streets of Chicago, and someone was offended that he would share the gospel and tell this person that he was a sinner and needed Christ. And the man said to Moody, mind your own business. And D.L. Moody said, your soul is my business. (laughs) The souls of men and women, that's our business. The lost people around the world, that's our business. And we've got to take the gospel to people all around the world. And although we're seeing some great work done, there's more to be done. Now, for us to have the courage and the humility, the wisdom to, in the face of all of this opposition or this indifference, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ at the risk of losing reputation and friends. We've got to have some kind of incentive that's going to motivate us. And we do. It's called the Word of God. And it's the mandate from God himself. Open your Bibles to the first book of the Bible, Genesis and the 12th chapter. In about 20 minutes, I'm going to go from Genesis to Revelation. I'm not going to touch many of the books in between, (laughs) just one. And this is really too much for one message, but I want to give you an overview. I want to start in Genesis 12 because this is the hinge of history. This is where things really begin to change. If, If you know your Bible, you'll remember that in Genesis 1 and 2, God created all things, right? He spoke, and worlds came into being. He created man in his own image and said, Man, I want you to go out and multiply and fill the earth. I want you to dominate the earth, and everywhere you go, reflect my image. But man rebelled. That's Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sinned and plunged the whole human race because they were representing all of us. They plunged the whole human race into a state of condemnation and sin. And you see the consequences. Man is cursed, the ground is cursed, the devil is cursed in chapter 3. Man becomes a murderer in chapter 4. In chapter 6 through 9, God has to send a flood and wipe out humanity because the society had gotten so wicked so quickly. It was disintegrating. And to rescue the world, God brought judgment with a flood and saved only Noah and his family. But even after the flood, man then wants to congregate as one and build a name for himself and a tower that symbolizes his opposition to God. And so for the Tower of Babel, God comes down and confuses man and his language and scatters man all over the world. And that's the end of Genesis chapter 11. And we're thinking, man, this is a downer, this book, the Bible. You know, you take one step forward and 20 steps backward. A little bit of progress, and boom, you go back again. This is horrible. And then you get to Genesis chapter 12. Look at verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. God said to Abram, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And notice this last phrase. And all the peoples, 
or all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Look at that last phrase again, so key. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. The promise given to Abraham. This is one of the foundation stones of all the Bible. This is one of those key passages you, you really have to understand if you want to understand the book, if you want to understand Christian mission. God, who is loving and kind and compassionate, as well as holy and sovereign and powerful, created man, but man rebelled, and now he wants to recover mankind. He wants to save the world and reconcile people to himself. And this is where he starts. Oh, we can see in Genesis chapter 3 something called the Proto-Evangelium, the first announcement of the Evangel, the gospel, the prototype of the good news. The seed of the woman is going to bruise you, Satan. He's going to give you a fatal blow. You'll bruise his heel, but you'll trip him up, but he will bruise you. First mention that the seed of the woman is going to conquer the work of the serpent. But here the gospel takes on even a grander perspective and scheme. Now, there's something we need to understand about Old Testament prophecy, and this may sound a little confusing, but it's, it's true, and it's something we have to understand and grasp if we want to understand the Bible. And that is sometimes the prophecies of the Old Testament have triple fulfillment. Triple fulfillment. There is, on the one hand, if you're starting off, you have this historical, immediate fulfillment. The promise is given to Abraham. There's going to be a historical, immediate fulfillment of that promise to him. Then there is sometimes a secondary, what we might call intermediate fulfillment of a promise. It's fulfilled during the gospel age, where the first might be physical. This is more spiritual. The gospel age, by the way, is that time period between the two comings of Christ. First advent and second advent, the inner advent period. And that's where you and I live. We are living after the first coming of Christ, which we just celebrated, but before the second coming of Christ, which we're talking about in 1 Thessalonians. We're living in this inner advent period. And that's where some of those Old Testament promises have a second fulfillment. And then there is ultimately what we might call an eschatological fulfillment. Eschatos simply means last times. The ultimate fulfillment is reserved for the end of the world and the end of the age and the new age and the new heavens and the new earth. So you've got historical, immediate, intermediate, spiritual, and ultimate fulfillment in the final eschatos. And I submit to you that this promise given to Abraham has that type of of fulfillment. And that's what I want us to see just briefly. Immediate fulfillment. Abraham, leave your family and leave your land. I'll give you new land and I'll give you a new family. And so Abraham leaves his home. Notice verse 7 of chapter 12. The Lord appeared to Abraham when he traveled as far as the land of Canaan. He got into the promised land, the holy land, the beautiful land, the Bible calls it. And the Lord appeared to him and said to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. In chapter 13, he said to Abraham, lift up your eyes, look to the north, look to the south, to the east and to the west. Everything you see, 
I will give to your offspring, Abraham. I promised you a land, and there's going to be a physical fulfillment of that promise. He also promised Abraham that he would be a great nation. You left your family, I will make you even a greater family. So you get to, like, Genesis 15. God says to Abraham, look up at the stars and count them. I wonder if he did. <laughs> you ever tried to count the stars? I mean, you, don't, you don't get very far, do you? Everything gets to be a blur. You, you couldn't count them. The point of the exercise is futility. It's impossible to count the stars. Abraham, if you can't count the stars, then I want you to know that someday you won't be able to count your descendants. You left your land, your homeland, I'm giving you a new land that's greater. You left your family, I'm giving you a greater family that you can't count. Later on, he said, count the sand on the seashore. If you can't count that, then someday you won't be able to count your descendants. And God literally fulfilled that for Abraham because he became not just Abram, but Abraham, the father of a multitude. And so the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, grow and develop, especially in Egypt. And then they come out of Egypt, wander in the wilderness, but finally get to the land and occupy the land, and it becomes a great nation just like God had promised. Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you, Abraham, can be a blessing to the nations. But all of the promise has not been fulfilled. Now, let's go to the New Testament book of Galatians and see that the same promise is going to be further explained. There's more to it than meets the eye. There's more to it than just a physical nation and a physical land. So we come to the book of Galatians. By the way, the New Testament starts out with Abraham from the very get-go. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And right away, Matthew wants you to know that the story that was given to us way back in Genesis is now continuing through the line of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's it, isn't it? God is going to bless through Abraham all the nations of the world. So the Jews bring us the prophets, and they bring us the law of God, but they also bring us the Messiah, who, in essence, is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises in Genesis chapter 12. Look at it. Let's begin at verse 6. Galatians 3 and verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand this, then, that those who believe are children of Abraham. Now Abraham more, has more than just physical descendants. He has spiritual descendants, right? And we read in the New Testament, they are not all of Israel who are of Israel. And Jesus argued with the Pharisees, listen, I can make stones you know, uh, children out of stones, and you're not just the child of God because you're the offspring of Abraham. And a true Jew is one who believes. So now the descendants of Abraham, there's this spiritual fulfillment in the gospel age. Everyone who believes in Christ is a descendant of Abraham, and that fulfills the promise that I will make of you a great nation, and I'll give you a great name, and you'll be the father of multitudes. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 8. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith 
and so announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. What was the gospel announced to Abraham? All families will be blessed through you. Wait a minute, the gospel in Genesis 12? That's exactly what it is. So how are all the families of the earth going to be blessed? Well, the Jews will be able to bless people because of the law and because of the prophets and, and, and other things. But their greatest blessing is bringing to the world Jesus, the Messiah, right? And that's why you've got the genealogy in, in uh, Matthew chapter 1 to show that Jesus is the son of Abraham. And then you go into the story of his birth. So what is this blessing that is going to come through Abraham to all the people of the world? It's the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is clear when you get into Acts. The, after Pentecost, Peter is preaching, and he's telling you, I'm talking to you about the one who fulfills Genesis chapter 12, God's servant who brings blessing to all the world. And what is the blessing? The forgiveness of sins in life that never ends. So here's this spiritual fulfillment, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you go on further in chapter 3, and it's very clear that the real seed of Abraham is the Messiah, Jesus, and he is the one who is going to bring people back to the Father. He is the one who is going to die for our sins. The gospel message is that God created man to have fellowship with man, but man sinned. And out of love, God then sent his son to die in man's place, pay the penalty for man's sin, and now whoever believes in Jesus has forgiveness of sin and life that never ends. That's the gospel message that is to bless every family in the world. But it won't happen automatically. You and I have to send missionaries to the uttermost part of the earth. And so that's where you have in the New Testament, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, your witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. That's where Jesus said, I have all authority, so go make disciples in all nations. Take this message of Jesus Christ and bless all people. That's our command. That's our mandate from God himself. And it's an exciting thing to be involved in the greatest enterprise in all the world, the one nearest and dearest to the heart of God, sharing the message of Jesus Christ to those who have never heard. Aren't you glad someone told you about Christ? I mean, aren't you? Don't you think others ought to hear? But the, the church is not doing very well, I mean, in this whole mission enterprise. At times, we seem to be almost colossal failures. It's embarrassing. We're intimidated by the world so we don't preach the message. We're infatuated with materialism and living the American dream so we don't sacrifice to get the message out. We're concerned about our own safety and our own reputation, and after all, I'm saved. That's what matters. And we have a callous concern for the world that Jesus died for. Looks like the church is losing that's why I want to end this message with Revelation chapter 7. And you are so glad we got to Revelation so quickly. 
I mean, it is almost like, if you can imagine a football game where your team is 20 points behind in the third quarter. <laughs> Just imagine it. It's hard to imagine. <clears throat> I honestly didn't plan this sermon because of the game, but I was watching that game on New Year's Day with my family in Pontiac. Hadn't seen my family for a long time. We're talking. I'm watching the game. And I got so upset that I stopped talking because I was afraid that whatever I'd say wouldn't be too good. I was upset with the Spartans because they were embarrassing us. It was an embarrassment. And I was upset with myself that I got so involved in a football game. And I was steaming. And then... Our quarterback shovels off a pass. It's intercepted. About the dumbest thing I think I'd ever seen. <laughs> Man, we were in trouble, weren't we? How many of you thought we were going to win the game? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> but then, and it was a miracle. There's a penalty, and he didn't score, right? And then there's a block kick, and they don't get a field goal. And then we score with what? 17 seconds left, and we win the game. Who saw that coming? And if you did, if you say you did, I know you're lying. <laughs> well, it looks like the church is about 20 points behind. It's the third quarter. We're not doing very well, and it looks like we're going to lose the game, and it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. But here's the fourth quarter. Look at this. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could number, no one could count. They came from every nation and tribe and people and language, and they were standing before the throne in front of the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Wow. We win. <laughs> we win in the end. This is amazing. And notice it's innumerable and it's international. How did all of these families of... Hey, this sounds like Genesis 12. A multitude that no one can count? and make of you a great nation. You've, you've got a new land, the new heavens and the new earth, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham, and here they are. Here they are. I don't know if Spurgeon is right, but I have to confess I want to agree with him, and I think I do. Charles Spurgeon said this, there'll be more people in heaven than there will be in hell. From a sermon, September 1855, do you think that Christ will let the devil beat him? That he will let the devil have more in hell than there will be in heaven? No, it is impossible. I believe there'll be more people in heaven than in hell. If anyone asks me why I think so, I answer, because Christ in everything is to have the preeminence. And I cannot conceive how he could have the preeminence if there are to be more in the dominions of Satan than in paradise. Moreover, I've never read that there is to be in hell a great multitude which no one can number. I rejoice to know that the souls of all infants, as soon as they die, speed their way to paradise. Think of what a multitude that is. 
And even though we read in the Scriptures that broad is the way and many there be that find it, and narrow is the way to life and few there be that find it, we also read in the end times, better times are coming. The religion of Christ shall be universal. Great revivals will take place. And Christ shall have the preeminence at last. His train shall be larger than that, which shall attend the chariot of the grim monarch of hell. I don't know what the final count's going to be, but I do know we underestimate the power of the gospel. And I do know that sometimes we think we're losing when we are winning. And the message we have, powered by God himself, is going to conquer nations and every tribe and every tongue will be represented at the throne. And the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise is that there'll be more people in heaven than you can count. Glory be to God. But how does it happen? Does it happen automatically? No. The God who ordained the mandate, take the gospel. The God who wrote the message, I'll send my son out of love to die for sinners and whoever believes will be saved, is the God who commanded us to go. He has ordained that human lips learn every language and get into every culture and just like the incarnation of Christ, Jesus humbling himself and emptying himself to come to a different world to share the good news, so we have to send missionaries around the world. So what are we going to do to be more missionary-minded? Well, let me mention a couple things. Number one, we need to... Actually, this is three things for number one. We need to go and pray and send. We need to have the attitude that we need to do one of these, two of these, maybe all of these. Go means you go yourself. Some of you need to think about that. You say, well, I'm not too young anymore. There's a lot of people retiring from their vocations to go to the mission field, a second career. It's happening. That may be what God wants you to do. I love the ministry of Pastor Odgers among the college students. You know, we have more college students going to the mission field than uh, I've ever seen before, and the excitement is thrilling. Tonight, hear the India team, hear the Mexico team, and see that these ministries are doing a lot to encourage South people to go. That's thrilling. But maybe God has, hasn't called you to go. Can you pray? If you're a believer, you can. And we're commanded to pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth labors into the harvest, Matthew 9. And once they get there, Paul said, pray for us that we'll have free course, that the word of God will not be bound. Pray that they'll be successful, efficient. So pray. And then send. God has not called us all to go. He's called us all to pray and he wants us to gain resources so we can help others to go. Maybe God has called you to gain resources for the kingdom of God. And he's blessed you in such ways that you can generously donate to the work of the kingdom. What a vision that is. 
to see that God uses your resources to advance the kingdom of God. And by the way, I'm saying this from a position of strength, as it were, in our church. Our trustees do a great job here. We're above budget again. We were for last year. All the money promised to come in for the chapel project has come in and more. We've been increasing our missionary giving every year. Those are exciting things. I'm not chastising you. I'm just saying, could we not do more? Could we not get a vision that people are lost and God wants us to do more to accomplish the task of world evangelism? Here's something practical that you could do. An insert that was in the worship folder today. If you have it with you, take it out. But actually, what we're trying to do is encourage everyone in South to join a missionary team. Now, this does not involve money, but it involves you becoming part of a support team. The missionaries are listed on the back, and so you fill in your name. Yes, our family wants to be a support for the, mission, the Smith family in India whatever it might be, okay? And what that means is you're going to pray for that family on a regular basis. You're going to communicate with that family, hear about their needs and pray for them. When they come home, you'll meet with that family. Imagine the Smith family coming from the field back home to South Church and 20 or 30 people meet with them for a dinner. And these are people that have been praying for them and communicating with them. That would so encourage our missionaries. Plus, it will open your heart to the work on the field. You say, but I can't just be part of one. I want to be part of several. Fine. List as many as you want to. You say, but I don't know who to be part of. Fine. We'll put you with a team. We want every one of our missionaries to have a group from South. We'd like to see everyone supporting some missionary with prayer and encouragement communication. That will get you involved in missions. I would encourage you to go on a short-term mission trip, like the trip to Mexico. Your life will be changed forever. You say, but I'm not much. I don't have many gifts. I love this quote from Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor said, God wants to use men and women who are weak and feeble enough to realize they have to lean on him. <laughs> if you say, you know, I'm pretty gifted, I'm pretty capable I'll let others who can't do anything be involved in missions. <laughs> My friend, the only people that God really blesses are those who acknowledge, I'm so weak, if God doesn't help me, I will fail. If God doesn't save me, I'm a goner. <laughs> if God doesn't bless me, there's nothing I can do to bless others. But God has blessed you in Christ so that you can be a blessing to families all over the world. And by the way, when you support a missionary, what they do on the field gets charged to your account. Philippians chapter 4. That's a good deal. <laughs> can we be more missionary-minded? Yes, we can. Here's a start. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful missionaries that we are privileged to partner with. The men and women, the families that have sacrificed much. And yet when you talk with them, they say, what sacrifice? <laughs> Serving the King of Kings and sharing the good news of Christ this is the greatest endeavor in the world. Help us to be involved, each one of us, in some way, in praying, in supporting, maybe in giving and going. 
But Lord, let us be involved because this is the mission that is close to your heart. You are a missionary God.